0: Hi, welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre loved Harley Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook. At West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Mini Sports. Anything and everything for the classic mini since 1967. Richie Barnett is a writer and journalist. He's also been on the other side of the fence uh, as a PR person. Cars have been his life and he's a keen observer of the UK auction scene. Always interested and volatile. Not too much talk about that, but I found it very interesting and entertaining. I know you will too, my guest this week on Speed Shop. Richie Barnett. I was at I was at um, an event at the weekend at the Ace Cafe in North London, uh, mm. the, Ace, the Ace Cafe reunion, the 27th reunion, right. and the two geezers that are the public face of the Ace, George and Mark, who've been there since since the cafe was revived nearly thirty yeah. years ago. Now, well, I'm
1: drinking my tea as we speak out of an
0: Ace Cafe mug. Are you mate? Marvelous. I am. Right. So, um, well, you'll know it well. So. Um, mm. When Mark was trying to get the ace back, because it was um, it had been established in the 1930s, become an iconic biker meeting place in the late
1: 50s. And was... a tyre depot. <laughs> yeah, oh, then, yeah, but I was
0: going to say it then became a tyre depot for many years, just tyres, and it's people would ride by or drive by, and yeah, that was the ace. That used to be the Ace Cafe. That's where all the fast lads used to meet and the tunup boys used to go around the North Circular trying to do the hun- trying to do 100 miles an hour doing record races, never actually existed. Do you know that?
1: Yeah, I mean, doing all that while while the Gene Vincent B-side was playing or something like that, or or maybe an early Johnny Kidd single.
0: Yeah, but do you know how the record races started, where they would, as you just said, they'd put a record in the jukebox and then they'd try and race to a prearranged point and get back before the record ended? Do you know how that started? Go on. In the mind of a scriptwriter on Dixon of Dot Green. Really? Yes, absolutely. Nobody could remember it actually happening before it was on Dixon and Duck Green.
1: Because the as... other one who's interesting, Steve, with that bike, um, with bikes of that period, is the is the vicar down in the East End of London. Father, oh, what was his name? Who, who, didn't he ride Aerials or something? He was and there called. Was a really interesting vicar he who was... had a, like a bike club down sort of Shoreditch way. Yeah, in he the was late fifties. He was and called. He, he was again, Steve. But there's so many of the good guys we never ever talk about because we do to or something, we don't <laughs> get the good
0: guys we talked about them all the time and he was called uh, the Reverend Bill Shergold and the club <sighs> that he established was called the 59 Club it was the 59 yeah. it right. and there was later another vicar called Graham Hollitt, who uh, was the mainstay of the 59 the 59 is still going there are only a few Very few of the original. Rather obviously, something that was started in 1959. Although they were young people, and interestingly, I'm now involved in a project that is um, to do with trying to reach out—a very walk term, but there you go—to young people who may be involved in crime, and in a lot of crime that a lot of crime that kind of impacts on on them. The sort yeah, of yeah, you know yeah, what they yeah. co- what they call like postcode beefs or whatever, where some lads from northwest London are having some sort of murderous interaction with lads who are from just like them but from just down the road for no yeah. other reason that they live just down the road for yeah, not for yeah. not because not and people must go oh it's to do with drug dealing or it's to do yeah. with crime. It's just pointless violence between young men. And so, in the same way that Bill Shergold decided to get himself a motorbike and to ride up to the notorious Ace Cafe and try and reach out to these kids who the press were demonising as sort of, you know, the juvenile delinquents Mm, of of, mm, of the mm. 1950s and 60s, we are trying to get some of these kids to see... The benefits of motorcycling in, in terms wow. of in terms of yeah stop nicking people's mo- <laughs> stop yeah. nicking people's motorbikes and using them for crime. Yeah. Why not use them to travel to broaden your horizons oh. to the, the sort of camaraderie, the fellowship of motorcycling?
1: Well, we're trying best we're
0: best trying best. to get them interested in that.
1: Oh, I think that's that's really good. There's a lad near me, Steve. He's got he's got um, uh, a C ninety. Cub, but he's re-engined it with um, uh, some modern Chinese sort of 175, which is mm-hmm. like a rip-off, I believe, of the original engine, but more powerful. And he goes, and him and a load of these other sort of um, Cub lads, they go, they go miles on it. And if you <laughs> could get these people you're talking about doing stuff, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> oh, a great thing, get people involved. I was you I have some... had a good living out of cars yeah. and motorbikes. Why shouldn't other people?
0: I was with some guys today, and they've got a bit of a Cobb fetish if you'll pardon the expression yeah. I'm, not, I'm not when when I say that crikey I didn't I didn't mean Boy Scouts, right I you, yeah. can I just no, I ever, can no, I, I just make yeah, a that
1: proper, a proper step but they do, but they've suddenly become popular unless you and I have mi- I've missed it because those little Honda c 50 70 90s seem to my mind to be all of a sudden mirroring popularity they've had in the Far east for years do
0: you want me to tell you why it happens Richie
1: Go on, I'm not a two-wheel expert. I know a little right. bit from what I say. Well, it's
0: c- it does have a parallel in the four-wheel world, but I think I think what it is, what's going on with these guys who I saw... I saw a, I saw a squad of them. I'm not sure what the collective term for a sort of crowd of middle-aged men on Cubs would be, but I saw a, I saw a squadron of them making stately progress down the East Lanks Road the other night. There must have been about... Yes. There must have been like, about 10 of them. And I really? just thought, yeah. And I thought, <laughs> I, and here's the thing the guys that seem to be into it are the guys who've had everything. So it's not guys that are just starting out. It, it's not guys that are just starting out in middle age on motorbikes. <laughs> mm-hmm. They have had. A 50, a 125, a 250, they had middleweight, across the frame, four-cylinder Japanese bikes. They graduated to Fireblaze, GSXRs. They then maybe went down the adventure bike route on a BMW GS or a Triumph Tiger. They've done the Cruiser thing. They've had a Harley. They've done – right, so you're 40 years, 35, 40 years into your motorcycling career. You're looking at the current market and what's on offer. Everything on offer – can do 120 miles an hour plus. Some of yeah. the stuff that's on offer will will do, as as somebody said to me on Saturday, he just test-ridden, motorcycle journalist, I've known him for 35 years, yeah. he said to me, I've just ridden the new R1, it does 100 miles an hour in first gear. What? Yes, mate. What? So that's what's out there in the world right now. Oh. And unlike in cars, where they all talk about cars and like sort of, you know, I'm not having a go at the three of them because, you know, I used to work with them and never had a problem with any of them. Maybe Clarkson, yeah. maybe Clarkson. But, um, you know, they'll discuss supercars as though they'll, they'll stand there and they go, oh, well, the McLaren this and the Ferrari that. And I go, and then the punters all standing around are going, oh, yeah, yeah, the McLaren. And I think, mate. You're never going to sit in one, you're never going to drive no. one, you're never going to own one. It's never going to happen. And that's the difference between cars and bikes. That yeah. R1 that does 100 miles an hour in first gear is within the reach of most working people.
1: Well, you could exactly. probably afford exactly. one. Exactly. And you can have a lot of fun. you just got to, as my missy says, who was a biker, you just got to remember that everybody's out there on the road ready to get you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, I don't think she ever... Mind you, she's got longevity, because my other half has got a Bantam, um, a very late Bantam... uh, uh, It's not a Bushman. It's it's a D1440... fourteen forty, D fourteen four Sport she's had for more than 40 years.
0: It's so weird that you mentioned the Bushman, because about an hour and a half ago, I was in a motorbike shop in Manchester, and a bloke came in on uh, a Yamaha, which had been... Somebody tried to look make look like a bushman so it had it had the high level it had the high level Sammy Miller exhaust it had the the wider bars it had a, a it had a BSA tank it had a polished tiny tiny little BSA tank probably hold about a gallon on a good day right and and he was like and they said oh yeah this guy cuz i said and it was a rickety thing and there were it had numerous issues but the, I said, uh, what's with that guy? When he left, he left the bike there. I said, what's with that guy? And they said, oh, he's not, he's not on an economy drive. It's not just some old thing he's dragged out. He's paid good money for that. And they said, uh, he's a professional man. He works in Manchester here in the city. And he's looking for a kind of a more stylish alternative to a Rev and Go scooter. So he settled on this little bush. Ooh. And it, and I said, you're right. It, it does. Tr- it is trying to look like a Bushman. He went, yeah, but it's a Yamaha. Sounds like, yeah,
1: that's interesting. Okay. That's a bit like those Mitsuoka or whatever they're called, um, K11 micro's that ended up sort of modified. So, that, yeah, but I know we should really gloss over these, prom- <laughs> but it's the same sort of thing. That, oh, dear me, so I mean, old. On. Having had a K11, I absolutely loved every moment of it. I just leave, just leave it as it is. it's fine. Hold on, need to do anything to So, it. right, let's
0: let, let's let's get into that because I, I do find that interesting. Did they only try and make K11 Micras look like a Mark II Jag, or was there another looky-like?
1: From the front, from dead on. I don't remember any others. Because isn't that front, it's really long, and it's like some of those horrible American neo-classics, like A's that had that really long front, with that Ted Lance nastily tunnelled in, with bits of what looked like guttering. Yeah, it's just, it's just, because um, again, I find all that American neoclassic stuff absolutely, I mean, I would never want to own one, but I find them fascinating. What, what, like a are.
0: Stutz Bearcat or something like that?
1: Mm, mm. Yeah, and, and, of course, and of course, we come back to this famous thing. I was talking to another journo the other day about cars that are uh, allied with famous people. Of course, what you always say about the Excalibur is, do you know who had the first Excalibur in Frank Sinatra. the United Kingdom? Oh, yeah, Tommy oh. Steele. Oh, well, Saw I knew steel. that. Saw yeah, steel. but he, he had the first one in the mid-60s. So who had, who, right,
0: which, which of the, surely Frank Sinatra had an Excalibur. Come on, tell me you did.
1: He must have. Sammy Davis Junior.
0: I think I think I'm pretty sure I've seen a picture of Sammy Davis Junior. with an Excalibur, and the other one I can think of was was Elvis. Did Elvis have an Excalibur? Yeah, Elvis. I think
1: he did as well, as well as shooting his Day to Masso. I mean, he had he had one as well. But there's interesting, Steve. If you talk about Excaliburs, is that Historics have got two, count them two, in their next sale here in the UK. Yeah, yeah, at the next historic sale at Ascot, they've got two. They've got a series five. Roadster and they've got a series four four door saloon, which is like I I showed the picture to the missus who who stuck her nose up, and then I showed because I said it's like a Panther Deville.
0: You knew how to Panther Deville, don't you?
1: Yeah, Oliver Reed and Frederick Forsyth
0: and Jim Bowen.
1: (laughs) Bowen, You're joking,
0: super smashy, great, yeah, absolutely.
1: Charity
0: money's safe, it's in the trunk in the back. Money's safe, though, lads. What is it that you do? Uh, I'm I'm unemployed, Jim. You're unemployed, fantastic. Right, let's... But the other thing you
1: used to say, Steve, when he say about, he say, oh, I'm unemployed, Jim. But he always say, never mind, there's
0: always darkness before dawn. Do you know what? He taught my ex-wife maths at Moorhead School in Accrington. He was the head of maths there. And then, later on, much later down the road, I used to fill in on his radio show when he was on holiday. So when he, he used he used to go off apparently and tell jokes. And what was his what was his other talent? Do you know what his other apart from telling jokes? Do you know what else he did? Do you know how he started?
1: Well, no, because he was a teacher like Tom O'Connor. Right. I knew that, um, but I don't know anything else much about Jim Bowie. The But the... I did make him laugh once when he All rang right. me up because he on. said because I rang in because I read his biography and I was writing for Classic Ford at the time. And he, he'd had a 100E, and there was a picture going off on his, on his honeymoon. And I rang him and said, nice one, what other Fords did you have? He rang me back and said, oh, what car have you got, Richard? And I said, the only car you can have in Wales, a Daihatsu. so <laughs> <laughs> he did laugh, so I don't allow Well, you that. made me laugh. <laughs> I have sort of succeeded somewhere, so I thought, well, that's not so bad. Yeah. But I don't think I'll be appearing at the Embassy Club or anything like that. Hey, that was
0: Bernard. Right, mm. I'll, t- I'll tell you a story about Bernard as well. So, it's funny, I was listening to, um, was it, who was it, Alexi Sale, mm. talking to Omar Jalili yeah, about stand-up comedy, and they were talking <laughs> about the fact that Alexi Sale invented stand-up comedy. And I'm right. thinking, wasn't there a TV show on, way before you, Alexis Sale, ever stood up in front of an audience? Called The on, Comedians. Called The Comedians, where a man would stand, usually a man, in fact I think it was always a man. Always would, a man. Would stand in front of a microphone and say, my wife walks into, you know, it would tell jokes. Was that Was that Northern Club comedy not considered to be stand-up comedy?
1: Well... I would refer you then, Steve, to look at my Facebook page today because i put up that poster from which I I, I shared from when some of the comedians did a summer tour at Blackpool in the early 70s, and I put up my caption four years ago was, can you imagine the number of XJs and 70s American cars in the VIP parking?
0: Well, Bernard, as you've mentioned, the daddy of them all, Bernard Manning, with his fantastic Embassy Club, (laughs) it's, it's, <laughs> the Embassy Club, I have to say, I went past the other night, it's in Harper Hay, very close to the city centre of Manchester. Right. And Bernard, who started as a kind of... Bernard started as a crooner. He was a big band singer. I was going to say,
1: because he didn't have a bad singing voice, really. No, well, that's he? how he started.
0: For, sort of for years he was a singer. But then he, he started to gain weight. He was a good-looking man as a younger man, and he and he had a good voice on him. So he'd, he'd do the sort of Tony Bennett, um, Frank Sinatra type... Uh, you know, crooning, mm, mm. but as he got bigger, his, his sort of dreamboat status uh, was diminished <laughs> by his increasing girth, and he discovered that he had a ready wit, and so, well, well, that was Tommy Cooper, wasn't it? Tommy Cooper, the magic tricks weren't working, so he, he went with a comedy, but anyway. Yeah. So yeah. Um, Bernard used to be very visible around Manchester because he drove, and there was nothing else. I don't remember seeing anything like this. There was—he uh, drove a Lincoln Continental. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that he would have got that from Manchester's very famous American car dealership, Bauer Millet of Manchester, Bauer. who for oh, many years were the only authorised—get G- this—the only authorised GM agent in the UK. The UK.
1: Lindram and Hartman then, down in London, were they just all... Because they were near the old American embassy, just behind um, Oxford Street. So were they, they in the sort
0: them. of diplomatic... Was If you were like, the sort oh, of yeah, Venezuelan... Yeah, if you were the Venezuelan ambassador in London and you wanted a Cadillac or a Lincoln... and By the way, uh, fact fans, I know that Lincoln Continental isn't a GM product, but Bauer Millet of Manchester <laughs> would have a showroom uh, right in the centre, literally right in the centre. I mean, if it had been... London, it would have been cut sort of, you know, on Oxford Street. I mean, no. it was right there in the centre of the city, and in the window, they had Camaros, Corvettes, they had Ford Broncos, they had all these American cars, which you simply did not see in the UK. No. And so Bernard had his Lincoln Continental, and the registration
1: number was... One Laugh. One laugh. one <laughs> LAF. Hey. Hey. Exactly. <laughs> You raised a very interesting point there, Steve, about Bauer Millett, because I was talking to Pete Tucker, the American... Oh, yeah, Pete Tucker. I did a bit of big interview with him for motorsport His book's great, he, by the way. Hmm? His book's fa- fantastic. Oh, yeah, isn't it? And it should have been better reviewed than, than it, it. should have had more exposure. But him and I talked about another American car dealer that was much more on your patch, Steve. And Pete Tucker never met this bloke. And that was Steve Mimac Cars in Blackpool. Now, do you remember the big ads they used to have in the Exchange and Mark? Used to have a whole column full of nearly new muscle cars every week. Well,
0: Blackpool would have been the place to have him as well, because, like you well, say, yeah. all those. There was something about a stand-up comedian where, well, of course, we mentioned. Well, we mentioned. I mentioned Alexis Sale, and I heard him being interviewed. In fact, it might have been when he was on Desert Island Discs. And of course, I'm of that generation that remembers him originally from the young ones, Jersey mm-hmm. Bolofsky, and all that sort of stuff. You know, I wasn't exactly popping down to the comedy store in Soho when I was a 12-year-old boy
1: <laughs> I mean, <laughs>
0: growing up in Bury, Lancashire. But I knew him from the young ones. And um, why is Alexis Hale come up in this
1: conversation
0: about American Well, we cars? go back to
1: stand-up comedians because we could get on to Colin Crompton's big block Pontiac um, uh, Parisienne estate from the uh, late 70s that's being restored.
0: A Pontiac Parisian Estate.
1: Well it was That's... the Pontiac Body
0: Shell. It was the same body shell as the Caprice. Oh no, but... no, I've remembered. Right, so of course, Alexis Sale, they were asking him about one of his his favourite characters, Bobby Chariot. Who, who lived was, in his Jag. Who lived in his Jag and was the character was that Bobby Chariot was one of these Colin Crompton, Bernard Manning, Ken Goodwin type northern comedians. <laughs> who seemed to be doing stand-up comedy before people like Richard Pryor and and, and uh, Alexis Sale invented it, allegedly. They seemed to be doing it before them. <laughs> but because they were doing it in working men's clubs in the north of England, it didn't seem to count for some reason. Because no, it wasn't no. being done in London, it didn't count. I don't
1: know why. Well, I know, well, I know I, I'm with you because I was brought up watching the comedians. My parents hated it because my dad was a, was a barrister and it was a bit like... You want to watch that? Oh, I don't know about that. I've
0: got to tell you this story about Bernard. So um, I'm working... I've left college at 18. All my friends have gone to university. But Hmm. I'm the one who said, I'm not going to university. I don't want to spend another three or four years in punery. I'm going to get a (laughs) well-paid job. I'm going to buy myself a car. I'm going to get myself a cool scooter or a motorbike or whatever. I'm going to get my own place. So I get a job working on building sites. And nice. the thing about that is it's one of those blue-collar jobs like the bins, waste disposal, truck driving, uh, working in construction, where initially the wage is good, but then you realise you're working with a guy twice your age and he earns the same as you. Uh,
1: so yeah, that's exactly. that's
0: kind of what happened. Four years later, I ended up at university because I thought I can uh-huh. either stick around on this same wage for another 20 years possibly getting up to foreman or having my own little building company or whatever, possibly, possibly not, or I can go to university and hopefully do something that's a lot easier than trying to work on a building site in the middle of winter. When you, I've said this, I've told this story before, where you have to heat the ground with a brazier before you try and break it with a pickaxe. It's like Ooh. something out of One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. It was like being in a gulag. <laughs> hey, but at
1: least this is the days when workmen still wore donkey jackets.
0: I did. I wore a, right, national, right, right, a right. national cold board donkey jacket. <laughs>
1: Superb! God, so,
0: we're in our Bedford, ex-army Bedford four-ton truck. <laughs> We've got the cement mixer on the back and the ladders and all the gear. And me and Phil, the guy who's twice my age but earns the same as me, absolutely cracking block and much better suited to that lifestyle than me. Ah, as nails. Absolute. Didn't feel the cold, the depths of winter. He'd be there with his Exactly the same thing. He wore exactly the same thing. He wore a brown pane check shirt, a pair of old jeans and obnail boots. And, oh, and he oh, wore right, that. Right, right, right. He wore that on the 1st of July and the 1st of January. He wore exactly ah. the same thing regardless <laughs> of the weather. I'd be there like thinking, this is like being in a forced labour camp in Siberia. And he'd just uh-huh. be there like, come on, Stephen, like this. We're like, oh, no. Anyway, we're in Harper Hay, the part of Manchester where the Wolf, it says the world-famous Find embassy club. It, yeah. I'm not sure that it is, but that's what it says on the outside of the building. And Bernard's coming out of the side street. In one laugh is Lincoln Continental, with the Continental pack on and everything. He pulls up next to us in the, uh, in the Bedford truck, and Phil, who, as I've said, is a real rough diamond, winds the window down and says, hey, Bernard, give us a joke, you rotund individual. He didn't say that. He cast, a, <laughs> cast aspersions on Bernard's parentage as well as his size. His, uh, exactly. his the window comes down. It's it's And here's the thing. Do you remember when blacked-out windows was, like, super rare? Oh, Do you remember yeah. when that was really oh, yeah. rare, that a car? The only cars that would have that would have John Lennon on the other side of them or, like, you know... Yeah. A, a lord, or sort of some some Hollywood star, like. or Diana, doors and that,
1: unlike absolutely.
0: Got some stories about them as well. Might tell yeah. them in a minute <laughs> from the cellar in the cellar in Windsor, and the you know all that. So anyway, might not. But um, the 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 blacked out window came down. A pudgy fist came out with the middle finger raised, and as the hand came out, Bernard just lit the back tires up on this Lincoln Continental. He just, he just he just he just he just planted his foot down hard, his right foot down hard, and the Lincoln just went up the road
1: with white smoke Pouring off both the bike tyres. <laughs> oh, I yeah, was quite right, but he probably did a gallon of gas doing that, didn't
0: he? I, grief, I that sort tell time. you what, the, the, those lads earned some money though, didn't they? And it, it's yeah. it's interesting that yeah. you should put that post up today saying, hey, look at all these sort of northern comedians from back in the day.
1: Yeah, well, if you like, go on Facebook now, Steve, you'll, or later on, you'll see I put it. It was really interesting because it was Frank Carson who drove a Honda Legend. I remember he had legends like Michael Aspel did at the same time. It was Dougie Brown, don't know what he drove. Colin Crompton, he had the Pontiac. George Roper, no idea, but he always struck me as a sort of bit of a Series One XJ12 man. Um, and of course, they had Shep's Banjo Band as well appearing, who were on the end of the comedian.
0: Oh, he's <laughs> I mean, just Good fantastic. Grief. That was entertainment. We were ent- in this era of Netflix and on on demand and all that sort of stuff. You okay. think, yeah, people used to sit there and watch a lot of men in brown suits wearing sort of <laughs> <Exactly>. velvet <laughs> the- bow ties, tell jokes that were always sort of borderline sexist, racist, or, or something. Well, whatever. Something yeah, this. the interesting thing was, Steve, on the poster they're
1: doing it twice nightly: twenty to six and twenty to nine.
0: That was entertainment,
1: mate, wasn't it? That was good, but you're good value entertainment. That was I'll tell you
0: great. what, Bernard cropped up again. He it, it, it cropped up a few times in my life because you know this is where I've lived for the vast majority, mm. vast majority of my life, for for good or bad. But um Berry Football Club, who are no more, R.I.P. Berry Football Club, yeah. and that's yes. one of the reasons that I hate football. I've come to hate it. Because Bury were allowed to go to slip away quietly, one of the oldest clubs in the football league, one of the oldest clubs in the world, were allowed to go, with a proud history, were allowed to go, even though they'd been promoted that season. If they'd have played the season that they didn't get to play because the club folded and went bankrupt, they would have played in a higher division. You tell me that a sport isn't corrupt When a club have been promoted because they've managed to get into that position at the end of a playing season, but they don't make it to the next season because of an amount of money that Cristiano Ronaldo could reach down the back of the sofa and pluck out, they went bust for such a tiny amount. I remember that. And people stood by and watched and did nothing.
1: Well, it must have been about. It must have been very sad because I mean, it ended up in in the, like the Telegraph sporting section. I mean, if, if the Telegraph starts looking beyond Northern Watford, I mean, you know, something serious is afoot. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it is, and it is a shame. But talking about Manchester, I was interested. Another person who fascinates me. Here and we I'm go. sure you've got plenty of stories. Go on. I want to know what car Tony Wilson drove. Right, because well I, I found this picture of him with an Arden-kitted XJ40. I'll ping it to you later to have a look at. He had that later. He had it that was... later
0: on. But um, I, I got in a position... Right, we should explain who Tony was. Right, yeah. so Tony was a fairly... I can't think of anyone else in the world of entertainment like him because... He was, at the same time, the coolest man in Manchester. He was the guy behind... Not not the only guy behind Fan, Factory Records. No. Because there was Alan Erasmus and there was Rob Gretton and there, there were other people that were involved with Factory Records. But Factory, who were, like, the coolest sort of... You know, they had bands like A Certain Ratio, uh, Joy Division, famously Joy Division, Deruti Column. They had yeah. this sort of avant-garde music. The sales weren't that great, but... It was super cool and it was, you know, it was all very sort of artful and he was really into sort of the whole situationist thing like Malcolm McLaren. Yeah. At the same time as he was the coolest guy in Manchester, he was the damn nightly newsreader. He was the guy at half past six who went, "Uh, good evening and welcome to, here is the news, uh, the police federation. He was like the newsreader. You cannot explain, Steve, can you? If you've never seen him or
1: understood it, you cannot get your head around... Just what he was. What he was managed
0: doing. to operate on those two levels. So every single person, ninety nine percent of people in the northwest, if you'd shown them a picture of, no, let's 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 not say that. Seventy five percent of the population would have said that's the newsreader, that's Tony Wilson, the guy who reads the news, and the kids would have gone, that dude's the head of Factory Records, the coolest yeah. label in the world, and you would have been like, the, you know, the people who set up the Hacienda nightclub, which you know, I. Used to virtually live in the damn place back in the day, but and it, it was amazing. But I fortunately got into a position where I could get, into you know, I could get into the hacienda for free, and you know, all that sort of stuff hmm. because I was a journalist. I was, I, I'd done some stuff for ID magazine and for the Face and, oh, a, hi, and an Arena. That's wow. how I started. That's how I started. I started oh. writing about and taking pictures of bands. The first picture that I ever took, because I started as a photographer, really, and the first photograph I ever took and got paid for was a picture of um, Henry Gibson, who was the bongo player in Curtis Mayfield's band, and the gig was at the the International. Roger Eagle, the guy who started the Twisted Wheel in Manchester, where Northern Soul originated. Um, It was at his club, the International. And that was the first picture I took. So I got into a situation where the German Newsweekly, Stern, do you remember the people, the Hitler Diaries, all that sort of yeah, stuff? Yeah, They contacted me and said, we heard that you're the guy, uh, we want to do a story about northern soul music. And I said to the journalist who contacted me, well, that's kind of all over, but there's this thing that's happening in Manchester right now, and they call it house music. And the first European publication, way ahead of all the British press, to publish a story about Manchester was Stern. They came over uh, came over two guys, I can only remember the photographer's name uh, Tillman, Tillman Shipius, very talented photographer came over with a journalist and they followed me around for a week and met my friends and the people that I knew and went in record shops with me and clothes shops, so they went in all the trendy clothes shops in Manchester that sold, sold all the baggy jeans of Fierucci and You know, all that sort of stuff, the crazy baggy T-shirts with the smiley faces. And I said to them, we can go and meet Tony Wilson if you want. And so we went to Tony's office and interviewed him, and he smoked a giant spliff. (laughs) <laughs> while we were doing the interview, and Tillman's taking pictures of him smoking this giant spliff, and I'm thinking, this guy reads the news, there can't be a picture of him smoking a giant spliff! No, that would be terrible! I'm just thinking, Tony, why are you smoking a giant spliff if it gets in the papers? But he, I think by that point, factually fact you were riding the crest of a wave. Anyway, and so he didn't care, right? But... I started talking to him in that situation and, and said, uh, he said, have you got, who, who are you, by the way? Because he was talking to the, the German, the German guy I was interviewing him, you know, he was recording the whole thing, pictures were taken, and I was kind of there. And he Tony he sort of knew I was a bit of a freelance journalist, he knew I was from Berry, all that sort of stuff. I said, I've got one question for you. And he said, what's that? I said, what's with the roof rack on your RS2000? <laughs> and he just started laughing. <laughs> and he said, he said... He said I can't be- oh, he said I- He said I can't believe that you remember that. I said it's imprinted on my memory. I said when I was about ten or eleven years old, you did an item, you went out of the studio and you went to Alton Park, the local racetrack track in-, in Cheshire, just down the road from Manchester, and you were going round there in your super cool lime green Ford RS two thousand. But you had a massive roof rack. And I was thinking, my dad's got a massive roof rack on our Hillman Hunter, but that's because he's a jobbing builder, and sometimes if he pops out to do an estimate, he puts the ladders on the car, he gets them off the van, puts them on the car, and he just pops out and does an estimate. So that's why my dad's got a massive roof rack. But why did you, Tony Wilson, the coolest man in Manchester, have a massive roof rack on your RS2000? And he said, one word, Steve, kayak. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I was oh, like well, and I was like. But of course, saying. then you could say he almost pre empted all the roof racks, which are an integral part of the Volkswagen scene now. So he was ahead
0: of that curve. Oh, well. yeah, because the, the air cool Volkswagen lads, they all want to have. Because it, do, you, do you know what that reminds me of, Richie? It reminds me of like um, mod scooters. You know, where they start to sort of. It's kind of who can have the most mirrors, who can have the most mascots, who can have yeah. the most lights on their mod scooter. The Air Cool VW boys are at the point where what can we what else can we do with these cars? Cause we've done everything. The Air Cool VW scene has been going for decades and everything and anything has been done. Okay, I'm gonna get if you notice now, they're like, Oh I'm gonna get a trailer and I'm gonna put a classic scooter on it. So there's gonna be I'm gonna get my Air Cool VW and then behind it there's a trailer and on that is a Vespa GS or a Lambretta SX, and it's painted in the same colours as exactly. the car, and it's all exactly. that sort of stuff. Because where do you go? Where do you go when, when there's been, you know, there's been an air-cool VW that's as fast as the, the fastest Porsche, or is somebody spent... I mean, I saw I saw a, a Carmen gear restoration uh, a few months ago, and the guy had spent 75,000 quid. Oh,
1: yeah. I'm not sitting down. What? Yeah. Right.
0: No. Yeah. yeah. So, and it was perfection. And and as he as he as he jokingly pointed out at the time, way 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 better than anything that ever came out of Wolfsburg. Oh no, hold on, they didn't come out of Wolfsburg, did they? Because they were, were they built by Carmen?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: They there's, Steve, carmen, Steve, there is a clue in the name.
1: <laughs> they yeah, were, yeah, usually. <laughs> yeah.
0: They, they were they were built by Carmen. Oh, they weren't built by gear because, of course, Bertone and Pininfarina obviously are, are car builders, but. Did Gear ever actually, or was Gear just Ford just owned that name, didn't they? And they shoved it on things. Well,
1: they bought it, didn't they? Because it had been independent, and then they let the Gear name go, and now they've got Vignali instead. Now haven't they? It's top of the range of all their people carriers, and like they're all Vignali.
0: Isn't it yeah. weird, Richie, Oh, the 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 motor industry will trade on names up to the point where nobody remembers why they're trading on that name. So we got to a point. Obviously, there was a time in the motoring history of the United Kingdom, where the name Vauxhall was the most the most prestigious that you could mention. Oh, I know. From the I era.
1: Know. You look at 3098s that are regarded as Britain's first sports car. Or a Prince Henry, United you know. 20, yeah, well, the 3098, course came from was yeah. born by the Prince yeah. Henry. Yeah. But they
0: were amongst the, the... So those two cars that we've just mentioned, which would have been from just after the Great War, wouldn't they? Sort of early... Mm early 20s so they would have been amongst the most powerful expensive cars in the world so you can see how maybe 20 years down the road 25 years down the road you might want to trade on that you might want to cash in on that currency that that name has so you might want to get a more ordinary car a more mainstream car and put that Vauxhall badge on it but what are you doing when it gets to the 1980s and you're putting the Vauxhall name on cars thinking that people are going to think of it as prestigious? Because it well, was a yeah. long, long way from the Prince Henry in the 3098 when, I, when my brother came home in a Cavalier SRI. Oh,
1: I'll be back. <laughs> I mean, because, because you see that, Steve, that you could almost see Rolls-Royce now trying with a fountain to do a Gurney Nothing limited edition and trade on the Gurney Nothing coach building name of the 20s and 30s. But how
0: many, Richie, how many of the football players, rappers and internet entrepreneurs that might murder out one of those Rolls-Royces, they probably think... They probably think that Gurney Nutting is on Everton's transfer list. Or he's being. Oh, hang
1: on. No, no, no. But (laughs) you're absolutely right. But you could do that, couldn't you? Because they could do a Cullinan Gurney Nutting. And you and I would would just cringe. Because when you go back and look at the Gurney Nutting coach work of the 20s and 30s, it's as good as anything that came out of Italy or Germany.
0: I'm absolutely fine with Rolls Royce building an SUV. I'm absolutely fine with Bentley building an SUV, but what there must never be is a Ferrari SUV, because it's just—it's
1: just, it's well, just there the amb- be, But I, I don't think there should be a Rolls-Royce one because I—I I, I just look at—I I was overtaken, there, but in, in, down near Cardiff, by a Bentley Bentayga, and I do not lie, Steve. It was metallic pink. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, I'm afraid to say as well. My late mother, who I got my interest in cars from, said she thought the Cullinan was an attractive car. And I know she was 87 or whatever. I said, Mum, have you had your eyes tested? But yeah, she but oh, a really nice looking thing.
0: What you what? can't, you can't fight City Hall if if <laughs> if you're if you're but if your public demand that you and they know because they ask and they say you know like like they and and again, the other one that was, whilst I'm opposed violently, quite violently to a Ferrari SUV, I'm fine mm. with a Lambo SUV because there was the Rambo Lambo was the was the LM was it 002? Yeah,
1: the one that they four or something, yeah. But that, but that is a just seriously fantastic vehicle. This current Lambo SUV leaves me cold. But there again, well, isn't thing, it an Audi it, it, it,
0: really at the end of the it, day?
1: suppose the one thing we could do for those like thee and me and and no doubt your listeners we can go back and say well hang on lambo was a tractor manufacturer Mm. so we're sticking fairly agricultural in a way by going with an Mm. suv
0: what's the name that's most evocative for you richie it's different for everybody it depends how old you are what your interest is what your history is but which name in motoring still has magic for you and i'll tell you what mine is
1: and I have two, please, because uh, my, my all-time all-time favourite car is a Facel Vega HK500. Wow! And my the make that most still excites me the most is Bristol.
0: That's fantastic, mate! Wow, you've got great taste. There's there's only me and you. There's only me, you, and Leonard Setright that think that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well I, 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 and our old friend Mr Buckley as well, I think, as well. Um I I, I, I just before hybrids were Priuses, hybrids were H K five hundreds, Monteverdes, Gordon Keebles and go back before the water like Railtons and Bruffs and that Atalantas, they used American running gear. Do
0: you know and, I was all
1: that stuff absolutely fascinates me and always has done.
0: I was li- I was listening to Radio Four uh, the other day. This is the second mention of this in as many weeks, but but here you go. You brought it up. Oh, um thanks. and it was in our time, which if people might know is the this very serious programme that's presented by Melvin Bragg, Lord Bragg, as he is yes. now, um, who many of us remember from the South Bank show. Good evening, welcome to the South Bank show. Did did, 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 did. Right, okay, did so he yeah.
1: Copernicus as well?
0: Pernicus didn't, didn't feature in this one. Oh. But this one was about the French writer and philosopher, Albert Camus, who I happen to think is amongst the three greatest writers of all time. The other two being yeah. Shakespeare and Orwell, of course. Oh, anyway, <laughs> pretentious bit over, hopefully. Um, he uh, said, today's The life and times of Albert Camus. So he said, He was killed whilst travelling in a small French family car.
1: I, I, honestly, Richie, what? yes. In Richard, oh, I don't think
0: so. If I could have plucked out the the infotainment system, because I'm not going to call it the radio, the infotainment system in the vehicle I was travelling in, and hurled it out of the window of the moving car, I would have. I thought, since when was the most extravagant, expensive, most powerful, fastest car in the world, a small French travelling well, car? Well, exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. But isn't it, 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 it the, the, the problem with fossils, well there's another thing, go, let's go back to Bristol very quickly. Oh, here um, we go. Seth right. You know, Seth Wright did a program once on Radio Four about hi-fi equipment. Did he? And he, he never called it hi-fi. He called it Steve Apparatus.
0: <laughs> right. I'll tell you my favourite Leonard story. No, I've got two Leonard stories to tell you because we've got time. Because podcasts are long form, so here we go. <laughs>
1: Please,
0: so go I get on a, um, I get on a plane with Leonard. I'm sat next to him. And he's rumbling, He's he's in his bag, and um, he pulls out guns and ammo. <laughs> <laughs> the American monthly magazine,
1: guns and ammo. God,
0: <laughs> and,
1: dear. but he was a member of a shooting club. in oh, London, yeah, wasn't exactly. he? Exactly.
0: And I said to him, "Now I'd done quite a lot of shooting as an army cadet. I was captain of the shooting team. I shot at Bisley. I shot at Old Car. I shot all over the place." And I'd shot everything from two two right up to fifty cal. Not in competition, fifty cal because you don't. But I'd, I'd fired. I I'd fired a tank for goodness sake. I've I've been on target. Well, I had. Right. So I, I thought I will make conversations. So I said, uh, "Do you like the Ruger Leonard?" He said, "No, a, a dreadful device like this." And then started going on at length about the Remington and it's. And I was thinking, right. So this guy is into four things: Honda Prelude's, yes. Bristols, jazz, yeah. and handguns.
1: That's right, and also old oh, and ancient. Um, but, is, uh, but,
0: but isn't there a fifth thing, Steve? We can add to that as well. Wasn't it ancient music? Did he not play something like the serpent? Right. Um, well, okay. So I'll, t- I'll tell you another Leonard anecdote. Might as well tell another one while we're here. So I remember reading a story about how, when he was a student, he would support himself—an engineering student—he yeah, would support right. himself by playing the clarinet in jazz bands in. London's um, exciting Soho after hours, where all the interesting stuff went on. So I'm not. I think it might have pre- well, it would have predated Ronnie Scott's. But obviously, there were jazz clubs, there were cabaret clubs, there were strip clubs. You know, where they would have had a light, a small live band da, da, Perhaps Leonard was doing, da, 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 you know, while the girls in the Windmill Theatre well, disrolled. Yeah, about yeah.
1: the mysteries of Edgar
0: Wallace. Exactly. So he told a story about coming down from north of London, down via Archway and the Holloway Road, which at the time I lived on. So I'm on the Holloway Road reading this story, which I think is in Leonard's book. I'm trying to remember what it was called. We'll remember it in a minute. Or it yeah, may have been... A long
1: line with turnings. That's or it. Or something like that, wasn't Yeah, which it? was
0: the collection of his work from Car Magazine, various publications mm. that he worked for, when there used to be proper motoring magazines with massive 4,000-word road tests and exactly. four or five four or five monthly columnists and all, Russell Bulgin, Leonard... Uh,
1: talking about wine.
0: George, George Bishop, he was so rude, wasn't he? Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... <laughs> right, He's anyway.
1: Purply, so... so
0: I'm walking back from Waitrose. Wait, the Waitrose on the Holiday Ro- Holloway Road was always an awesome celebrity spot because it's Waitrose and it's not. It's in Islington, for goodness' sake. It's, well, not, we'll in b- it's not in a push It's not in a posh bit of Islington, but it's the big Waitrose in Islington. So, uh, you know, one week I'd be in the queue, ten items or less behind uh, Michelle Roux. The next week, Lord Kinnock and his wife. Uh, the best bit was when I went in one week and was two people behind Sir Ian McKellen, and then I went in the following Saturday, and there was a Comic-Con event at London Metropolitan University, and there was a young lad in there dressed as Gandalf, and I went up to him and said, if I told you I was in here last Saturday, you wouldn't believe me. <laughs>
1: oh, so anyway,
0: I'm walking back down the Holloway Road, and outside the tube station there were some lads in Ives digging a hole in the road with jackhammers. And what they're doing is that one of them's got something in his hand and he's looking at it and the others are scratching their heads. And I said, apropos of nothing, as you'll know, is my want. I said, do you know what that is? And they went, what? And I went, that's a wooden cobble. And, they were, and it was because I knew about the wooden cobbles on the Holloway Road because I'd read a story about Leonard coming down on his Douglas motorcycle The motorcycle that BMW copied with its horizontally opposed boxer engine, shaft drive to the rear wheel. Oh, you thought that was BMW's idea, did you? No, they nicked it off Douglas. Leonard was coming down Archway, down the Holloway Road, into London to go to Soho with his clarinet strapped to the back of his Douglas motorcycle. He got to the big houses on the Holloway Road, the large imposing townhouses, all of which are sort of very downhill these days, although there's, like everywhere else in London, there's an enormous fierce gentrification process going on. And the the good burgers of that part of London had tired of the ceaseless clatter of iron-banded wheels on the stone cobbles of the Holloway Road and had paid to have them replaced with wooden cobbles, which were considerably quieter. However, they proved to be deadly dangerous to motorcycles if ever it rained. So Leonard, yeah. Leonard had come flying down from the top of Archway into Holloway, got onto the wood, wet cobbles, and just gone flying, just gone arse over tit, and oh. Douglas had gone sli- sliding down. And he said, uh, "Once he said once I had collected myself, I'm trying to put you, Once I had collected myself and assured passers-by that my my life and limb was not in immediate danger of expiry." Because he used to write like that, didn't he, (laughs) he? or whatever. And he said, I checked the condition of first my clarinet and then my Douglas motorcycle. <laughs> and proceeded wow. proceeded on my way so priority. imagine that your three lads digging a hole in the road and some random northerner starts giving you a lecture about a long dead orthodox jewish gun obsessed jazz playing motoring journalist i mean <laughs> i don't th-
1: i don't think it was what they were expecting <laughs> well done. No, I, I hope they still talk about that memorable <laughs> occasion as well. If not, Steve, you're doing something wrong. You need to get back up there, I think. But, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish I could find this. I have searched for this broadcast he did on Radio Four, and I've never been able to find it. But, but it, I think it'd be a very interesting thing to listen to.
0: Do you know what, Richie? I've never, I've never driven a Fassel. I've been, I've been obsessed with them for a good thirty years. Probably Martin Buckley's again, Martin. Uh, Leonard gets mentioned, the journalists that get mentioned most on this show. Martin's probably in second place because, like myself, Martin's always been a Lancia fancier, and he's he's yeah. like, he's like the yeah. sort of weirdness, like old Citroen. Ma- Here's the thing: Martin liked the Citroen SM when the only people who liked the Citroen SM were me and him. When you when you could buy them for next to nothing, nobody wanted them. No. Now, now, no. of course, it's like. You know, there's no end of websites. The ten coolest cars you've never heard of, and it's basically oh, cars that Martin Buckley used to write about, like NSU r O eighties, Citroen SMs, Monteverdi High, Lancia Lancia HF two thousand. You know, all, all all the sort of soup the top trumps cars I would call them, Bristols, cars like that that you would never ever see. In the, in the standard sort of day to day life of any, like, well, particularly where I was, you know, where you were or, or where I was, you know, if you saw an E type, that was like the end of the world, wasn't it? It was like, oh my God, a Jaguar well, yeah, E type. Yeah, yeah.
1: Funny enough, I remember, I was saying to my dad the other day, I, yeah, 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 because E types really did fall into banger status early. And I remember seeing a coupe in the early 70s in Newton that must have been. Uh, a Series 1, and if you looked at it from above, Steve, it had been painted, and it had been quartered to be like a Battenberg cake in four (laughs) colours. And it was like brown, yellow, (laughs) green and red, I think it was. And I remember that, and here we are, 40 years on, 50 years on, and I still remember it. It was such a shabby old thing, but they were.
0: Mate, I I often tell the story that I can remember the four cars on our street when I was a kid. I can remember Mr. Harrison's orange maxi, Jerry and Sheila's Ford purple—I know the exact colour—Ford purple velvet, Mark to escort 1.6 gear.
1: I can remember on, mate, the cars. I the Metallic paint on the 1.6 gear. Well, Same get this—they
0: had no kids and pampas grass in the front garden, so oh, uh, we 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 we
1: we. we, we, we out the fauna because it could lead to something else as, as well that begins with f but uh, there uh, we are we'll think... do, but you say that steve but it's interesting because when my mum and dad moved into where they live uh, in burnham beaches um the guy opposite we moved in in 73 he had opposite an audi 100 and it was hang on mr davis opposite has got an audi 100 in 1973 And, I mean, now there's a make that's gone from being the the
0: intelligent choice to just the choice of anybody. It's it's the 21st, I was going to say 21st century, but it's the kind of, over the last four or five years, it's taken the place of BMW in that whilst it is in itself, and I think it's very similar to other things like Manchester United or Florida, it's become something that itself is pretty great, but the people that seem to like it, that's what I have a problem with. It's not the thing itself. There's nothing wrong with the Audi. They're great. But it's, they seem to, for some reason, have attracted total
1: assholes. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's again. funny, well, it badly. Yeah, oh, you can't say that. So, here, yes, I can. I also regard them, Steve, as social climbers. I don't know. I I don't know whether it's... If you've got a small one for a company car, you've got it on the drip, you're a social climber. You look down on the man who drives, say, a few years ago when you could still buy them, I would have always had the top of the range Mondeo, just because I'd rather have a Ford. There's nowhere
0: else in the world, Richie, where the disparity between people's income and the standard of car that they drive is so nuts. I there's a there's an estate of new houses uh, near where I am, just near the university uh, outside of yep. Manchester, built on a former colliery. And they are these new-build houses that are
1: tiny.
0: They're detached. They're not... They, they're detached. They're tiny. They're like, the, you know, they've got a front lawn the size of a table, tennis table. And they, they sort of take pictures of it. Oh, there it is. Then you see it in real life and you think, oh, is this like a studio set where it's everything's three-quarter size? It's like... Tiny, tiny new build houses, and outside them, brand new Mercedes, brand new Audi, brand yeah. new Range Rovers by the score. And I am yeah. thinking, okay, I know what the average income in Manchester is; it's it's frighteningly low. The average income is around twenty four thousand, twenty four and a half, twenty five thousand.
1: Yeah.
0: How the hell are they in that car? The, the the RRP of that car is, and we we know what the RRP is, but we also yeah. know. That nobody is paying that. Nice. Nobody is paying that. It's all on the drip. But here's the thing, my friend. The drip is on the drip as well. So yeah, everybody, yeah, absolutely. everybody, not everybody, but an enormous number of people, car buyers in the UK, are able to access a vehicle that truthfully is way above their pay grade. Because no, I would imagine nowhere in the world is the car market as competitive as it is in the UK? And I've heard stories of dealers taking a £1,000 out of a car that costs £50,000 or something. It gets to a point where just to make a sale, they are cutting their own, they're doing anything to get that punter into the car that they want, regardless, regardless. They never actually own the car. How many people own their car now? They think they own their car. You don't own your car. You can't afford that car. It's just because there's been a big billboard saying that you can drive around in it for £200 a month. And you can afford it for £200 a month. But in a few years' time, there's going to be a day of reckoning. And they're going to tell you that you've kind of not really been keeping up with the payments. And that if you actually want to own it, you owe them... A million pounds <laughs>
1: or whatever but it is. If, but if you go on the PCP Steve, but I, I, don't, I don't know how many miles you do. But in my 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 lovely old X types that I, which are both petrol ones, I do the auctions coverage with. I mean, I got two hundred and sixty-five thousand out of a two-point-one, wow. and I never changed the clutch, the exhaust, or the shock absorbers. Wow! But it kept going. But now you hear these adverts for getting a, an F pace or something on the get it on the PCP, and you've got to put nearly five grand down and then you're limited
0: to 8,000 miles a year. Well, that's no good for me. I could do 8,000 miles in two months. I bought a 2-litre Citroën with the legendary HDI, oh. the Citroën Peugeot that HDI engine, which when yeah. people talk about engines, you can talk about the Chevy small blot. you can talk about the Jaguar inline six, you can talk about the Hemi. That four-cylinder diesel engine is, for me, one of the great engines of all time.
1: Well, it's mobilised people
0: efficiently and reliably for years, hasn't it? I've just bought, and I think I'm about to scrap it. I'm teetering on whether to scrap it or not. I've just bought one of those that was virtually at the end of its life, just as a runaround. Run it right up to the end of its MOT, and in that time, I've put twenty-seven thousand miles on it. In that time, oh. I worked out exactly what it's cost me for 20, 000, twenty-seven thousand miles of motoring—less than a thousand pounds in terms of and do you know what do you know what the biggest expense in that was a clutch and here's the thing the clutch was the big expense and the clutch in it right now is perfect but, yeah, the,
1: but you, was that was that a dual mass one though steve
0: or was that just no, a replacement clutch? no this is a this is a all 3 so the things like 17 18 years old get this it's a hair's breadth away from a quarter of a million miles on the clock
1: oh good do it steve get it to t- Get it to 250, like I did with my <laughs> X-Type. Uh, I did it with my X-Type, and then I had new floors put in it. I then thought wow. it been so loyal, I had new galvanised floors put in it. And everyone says, oh, and X-Types, they're not real Jaguars. But by golly, it never failed to start first time. It got me here, there, and everywhere. 600-mile round trips in a day. And, and still do more than 40 to the gallon out of a petrol one.
0: Yeah, but here's the thing, mate, and there's an issue here. Have you seen how much scrap's worth? No. I've just gone online today and looked at how much that citrus worth to me as scrap. It's worth three hundred it's worth three hundred quid to me as scrap. Right. No, no questions asked. So yeah. why why wouldn't you? I mean, you know, shall I tell you how much you paid for it? So it's three hundred quid scrap. I tell you how much you paid for it? Two fifty.
1: 350.
0: That was 27,000 miles ago. But that's brilliant.
1: That isn't that brilliant. And it's like all these old K11s that still keep going. They just go and go. They're off there a, a few sort of semi modern cars that you can buy as bangers and you can get brilliant service out of. Do
0: you know what, mate? Still- we have. Here's the thing. You're the auction guy. You've been the classic car auction guy for a long time now. Let's not say how long. We haven't what even talked. We haven't even talked about it. We'll, we'll have to doing. come
1: back then, Steve. You'll we'll have, have to come, come back and do another one. I'll be more than delighted to come back and talk to you about that. And we'll we'll try and put. A, we won't talk about northern comedians
0: or Fasel Vegas. That's it for another episode of Steve's Speed Shop. Social media doesn't let us tell you about it. You need to spread the word about Speed Shop. Tell people how good it is, how entertaining it is, and how fantastic I am. See you back here next week.